Hello everyone, you are listening to Black Adoptees Identities. I am your host, Christelle Pellicure, and I am a coach and a multidisciplinary creative. Please join me to explore what identity means for adult adoptees and how they form their identity for their own adoption journey. In this podcast, you will hear a variety of views from adult adoptees about their own experience of adoption and how adoption has impacted them and what lessons they have learned along the way. Please note that the guests have been courageous in sharing their stories and some of the content and subject matters can be emotionally challenging and distressing for some individuals. Please use your own judgment whether to continue to listen or not and do look after yourself. And if you are affected by some of the issues discussed, please seek appropriate support and help. In this episode, I am in conversation with Anthony Lynch. Anthony is a mixed non-binary adoptee and is the co-founder of In Between Lines. We discuss our adoption story and the challenges they faced with adoption and identity. Anthony shared their reunion journey and the work they do with In Between Line and with individuals with complex identity and lived experience. Anthony also shared their healing journey to come to the other side and their creative practice. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Black Adoptees Identities. I'm Crystal Pellecure, and today I am joined by Anthony Lynch. And Anthony is a workshop facilitator, creative, and lived experience consultant. They use their lived experience as a mixed non-binary adoptee to influence organizations such as MIND and the University of Exeter to become more inclusive and trauma-informed. They also co-founded In Between Lines, an award-winning creative community for individuals belonging to multiple ethnicities, culture, and families. Anthony, welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. It's been a it's been a long week, but um, yeah, looking forward to this conversation and just sharing knowledge. Yes, and you, you've been very busy last month, I saw on social media, but we'll come into that shortly. But let's start with you and your story. So where are you based and what's your adoption story? Okay, so I am a as I said before, or as you said before, mixed non-binary adoptee. Um, I was adopted at 20 months, uh, was born in Croydon and fostered in Croydon, but then moved to East London where I've sort of been raised since then. And um, I was adopted into a family which kind of looks like me. So my heritage is Jamaican. Well, it, I know that one side of my heritage is Jamaican and the other half depends on what DNA test you use, uh, what site you use. But my adopted family is Scottish Monstration, um, which is Caribbean island. So I have my sisters who are my adopted parents, biological children and another adopted brother. And we all kind of look similar. So I never really had that experience of othering both within my family, but also externally. Um, growing up in London as diverse as it is 
So although I had different challenges, I felt it was very beneficial for me to almost be able to hide my adoption in a sense, and then also to not feel othered in school or in any sort of environment during my childhood. Yeah, I guess it's, yeah, you make it not easier, but different mm. experience in the sense that it could, you kind of had the mirroring in your family because everybody looked like the same. But you're mentioning you had other challenges in terms of your adoption. What would, would have been for you? So with the mirroring, I think the issue was that I think it's very easy when you're an adoptee to have some sort of persona or like personality that you build on top of your trauma. and when people would ask you that classic question of where are you from, which I hate, like I think that question should be completely banned. I could give them the, this really traumatic adoption story where I don't know what's happening and, you know, still struggling as like a 10 year old, or I could just pretend and be like, oh no, I'm half Scottish, half Monstration. And sometimes I'd say I'm Jamaican, half Scottish. I would do all of the permutations of what my potential identities could be, but I guess what it taught me to do was how to manipulate your story to get other people to for yourself to become digestible to other people, because I'm sure as you and other people can relate, you know, when you tell people that you're adopted, sometimes it's awkward, not because it's an awkward subject, because it's awkward for them. They don't know how to process it. They don't know how to talk to people about it. So I think that was an issue and learning to embrace my adoptee identity to be able to sit in it and be like, this is who I am rather than pretending to be someone else or to be part of a different family or to not appreciate my complexity. You know, that was a, that was a big learning point for me. I'm just making an assumption, but have you come out of that now? Are you able to embrace who you are in terms of your identity or are you still trying to navigate that process and still telling people different stories? I have definitely healed massively and I'd say I've come out the other side where I'm in a state of healedness and the way that I think about it is that you know life goes on but like the act of sort of trauma processing and becoming and doing the work is finite there is a finite amount of trauma to deal with and acceptance to incorporate into your life and I think that's what helped me keep going was the belief that you know, when you're doing all of this really difficult work with accessing adoption files, DNA tests, reunion, and also like semi, not like spiritual practices like meditation and yoga and really getting back into your body, which I find so important. Just that belief that, you know, you can get through the other side, you can process this stuff and you will find peace. And I think that's something that I try very hard in my work to communicate to other adoptees is that you can get out the other side. You know, it doesn't have to be struggle forever. And you talk about reunion. Did you go through that process of meeting your birth family as well? Or you have not? Yeah, so um, I met my extended family. Well, I've known my gran since I was 10. And she's a Windrush migrant from Jamaica. She's one of the most amazing people mm -hmm. I know. Like, incredibly strong, resilient. I'm so glad I've got her genes. <laughs> but I met my aunties and uncles on that side of the family in January and I went with my adopted parents and I know a lot I know everyone's experiences of reunion are different but I did end up kind of having that fairy tale everything en ended up going really well at least on that day where 
you know, my grandma prepared a whole spread for like all like eight of us. And we were just talking. I brought my life story book. Being able to look at like my uncle, for example, and seeing yourself. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really like, that's something that a lot of people don't think about as an adoptee is that you're not reflected in the family that you're a part of. Like just seeing my uncle and like we have the same face shape, you know, sitting around the table and being like, we've all got eye problems, you know, was just so intensely healing and amazing. So there was that moment. And part of my work is with In Between Lines is that we run exhibitions. And so I invited them to come to one of my poetry nights and seeing them mingling with my family, with all of my friends was there was a there was a part when I saw that and part of my heart just came together and healed and again just this real sense of wholeness which has been amazing for me I don't know my paternal side of my family like I don't know my dad at all and that will be something that I will pursue slowly but I'm not really in a massive rush at the moment I think for the first time in ever in my life I've felt sustained peace and happiness and I kind of want to sit in that and move as that as the primary engine rather than struggle that's amazing yeah so it sounds like a really good experience of a reunion so thank you for sharing you talk about the work you're doing with in between line can you tell us what exactly your organization is and what work you do yeah so i along with zoe esther and ocean we all formed it in our last year of university at exeter and we were students and we're doing an internship at the Exeter Decolonizing Network, which is a group of academics and students all trying to share decolonial and anti-racist policy and practice. And we essentially met up for coffee and just started talking about our journeys, intersections, life experiences. And Exeter is a very white place and I and this was with a group of people of color and just the feeling of being so heard and so seen and the resonances of our lived experience despite growing up in five different countries across the world it was too strong to ignore and from that we kind of had a free reign with within the network to what we would do so we decided to write a blog post about our experiences and then from that we were like, no, this, there's more here, there's more here. So we made an exhibition, which is essentially a combination of art, text, and sort of audience prompts, which are questions um, for people with lived experience to answer about sort of like their heritage and experience of growing up. And so, you know, originally it was a student project and we've kind of just gone from strength to strength where we got invited back to the other campus in Cornwall, then went to London in April um, with my adoption agency, Quorum. We mm. sold over 130 tickets. It was amazing. And we had amazing guest speakers all talking about all forms of what we term complex identities. So in between lines is all about people who belong to or find themselves sort of between societal categories of race, culture and family. So any kind of like mixed heritage individuals, adoptees, care leavers, children of immigrants, immigrants, refugees, anyone who sort of identifies as having a complex identity is welcome there. Yeah, so we had a six-month internship, which just finished this week with Forum, and we've now got a website where we 
we actually won an award from Minds um, where we got some funding. So we're going to start commissioning people to talk about their experience. And I think before it was just about facilitating spaces and finding spaces. And we've definitely done that and we'll continue to do that. But now we, we seem to be influencing systems and organizations to start embedding lived experience. So this week has been so busy for me because I was at an adoption conference on Tuesday and Wednesday. And myself, Zoe and Esther presented a workshop to a bunch of CEOs, heads of service, civil servants, I even got to ask questions to the children's minister, all about embedding lived experience and valuing lived experience. A lot of interviews that I've given with adoption agencies or articles I've written have been for free. And I really wanted to make it clear to these in, to these leaders in the field that you know, obviously, who would know more about improving the care system and adoption than the people who actually experienced it? And um, I don't think there's anything. I think these people are good people and they want to do the best that they can. But the systems that they're in are creating really rubbish outcomes for adoptees where there's a lack of community and peer support. And it was a really unique opportunity to speak to them and try and begin to engage agencies in paying adoptees fairly, involving them in every aspect of decision-making and ultimately making a better care system and sort of things available for adoptees. That's an amazing work. I mean, it's so needed actually, because I mean, yeah, a lot of the time it's always been in the past, at least has been a lot around parents voices and not like you say it's not the lived experience of the adoptee so i'm really glad that you are doing this work because i think it's really needed and i think you are going to take a while but if it is starting now talking to leaders and organization that is really amazing because they do need to hear this work and like you say adoptee cannot be again used in a way <laughs> to do this yeah. work for free and uh, expect that we don't we don't say nothing, you know, while other people doing the same work and being paid. So, yeah, it is something that it needs to be changed uh, in the system. And I, I totally agree as well that, you know, adoptees need to be heard. Their voice needs to be amplified uh, in that space because we are the one who've lived it and we know what we felt, what we've been through and what's experienced. So, yeah, I'm I'm really um, impressed by the work you're doing in Exeter, and I'm glad that we connected as well, so people can more people can hear about the work you do. Um, so, what has been the the response from the uh, audiences in terms of like your exhibition, all the talk you're doing, and the blog you're writing? Uh, what has been the response? It's been broadly overwhelmingly positive. There's various groups who've responded in different ways, but I think people with lived experience, one really sweet thing is that we have post-it notes where people can put up their questions. And often we get people during our events to sort of, they end up leaving feedback and a lot of the stuff is really amazing. One of my favorite post-its was like, thank you for this. You put words to feelings that I've had for years. What you do matters, you know, and loads of variants of that same thing and I'm just so happy that people can go to these events with the lived experience hear people talk at a conversation panel or a poetry night and feel validated because I feel that especially for adoptees because I think the primary sort of experience of adopt like for adoptees is disconnection or at least it was for me and 
you know, there are loads of adoptee groups out there, but for some reason we're all profoundly, you know, not aware of each other. And for people to come to, for, for me to facilitate an event with in between lines and for people to realize that what they've been feeling isn't like super strange or weird and, you know, it's entirely normal is one of the most special aspects of what I do. So the lived experience part is amazing. In terms of professionals, so we do a lot of work with professionals. Yeah, it does seem to be helping. They do seem to understand, but there's a massive difference in the realm of listening and actually doing something about it. And what we're really trying to to hammer into the minds of these leaders and also just social workers generally is that we know that you're, you're doing the best that you can, but rather than talking about stuff and just holding and consulting with us, you need to put adoptees or people with lived experience in your organization. And we've been working with Quorum um, and they've done a great job of, you know, embedding us in the organization. But, you know, our partnership is is ending this week and we really want to make sure that we're not, you know, just the one and done. We tried it. Now let's just go back to how it was before. There needs to be people working throughout adoption agencies with that lived experience because they can make informed decisions on the most important part of that system, which is the children and the adults that they grow into. In your work, are you also working with other adoptees? Do you bring other adoptees coming to talk with those organizations and leaders? Or is it just your own work with your colleague? That's a great question. We try as much as we can to include all different perspectives because no adoptee story is the same. Um, They're all completely different. So we had this really cool guest speaker in London called Andrea who she um she's minority mixed which is different from a lot of portrayals of mixedness now which tends to kind of be like Meghan Markle mixed where it's like you know white Caribbean or white African very easy to fit into the sort of binary spectrum of whiteness and blackness which just doesn't exist so we often try and get as much diversity in perspectives because um I'm I'm just obsessed with lived experience and hearing people's <laughs> stories. Um, it's not even for other people, for the audience, it's mainly for us um, because we've talked about our story enough. But uh, one part that we really missed in our London exhibition was the sort of generational aspect because myself, Esther, all the in-between lines people were like 22, 23. And we really missed the whole history of the forced adoptions and just the older generation who you know, had really difficult things happen to them. And we actually ran a conversation panel with an older adoptee. We partnered with the adult adoptee movement, which is campaigning for the government to give an apology. And it was really fascinating to hear the differences because they grew up in a much more, at least overtly racist society. And they often were sort of raised in the countryside away from other people of colour. So they had that much they had so many levels of disconnection, but also just the enduring similarities in terms of those feelings of loneliness, disconnection, the grief of healing, but then also coming out the other side for some of them and feeling whole and able to have their own fulfilling lives. I think particularly it was really interesting about, about adult adoptees talking about the experience of having their own biological children, because I'd never really thought about. Obviously, it would make so much sense in hindsight that having your own kids would trigger all those sorts of feelings but 
for someone who's just in their early 20s it's really it's really good to hear that wisdom that they've developed so that when I feel those feelings I'm not going to be like this is really weird it's set within an overall context I mean you, it's amazing because you're still in your early 20s and you're very wise and you've done a lot of work on yourself already I mean some of us like myself it took me a lot longer <laughs> to, to come to the other side what has helped you? What was your journey of healing and what's um, things that really helped you in that journey? Thank you. That's a very nice thing to say. I think that it has been about me failing over and over again and trying to just not giving up on myself. But um, in terms of more specific things, I sort of consider two sides of my healing journey, which is like the narrative side which is all about trying to find your voice, being able to tell your story. It's essentially about storytelling skills. And that's all to do with your adoption records, being able to, you know, your DNA tests, finding out information about yourself, which is all sort of a very mind-oriented practice, which has its place and is extremely valuable. But what I realise is that you can only go so far with that work. And what is needed as well is engagement with the body somatic practices trauma healing the body is the context in which the mind expresses itself and the, the amount of healing that you think is possible when you're not only doing mind practices in reality you can do so much more when you start you know somatic meditation what's really helped me is emdr and really taking all the energy and staying out of those pre pre-verbal trauma that i had and yoga and also sort of embodied cultural practices as well. I know everyone, a lot of adoptees of colour talk about their hair journey and learning to love their hair. Um, but for me, I sort of consider it as connecting with your culture and connecting with my blackness in like a quiet way rather than a loud way, you know, learning to dance, learning to cook. Those sorts of embodied practices are just as important as, you know, knowing the history. Um, and being able to connect yourself to the larger diaspora and sort of colonialism and all those things. So I think it's a balance and it's a constant negotiation between improving my storytelling skills, getting better at understanding my narrative, but also appreciating that there are some parts of my identity that I'll never know about and finding peace with that. And the way that you find peace with that is by becoming really connected with your body, healing trauma, and practicing cultural ties embodied cultural ties to your heritage and you know I didn't think that I'd ever get to this process or to this level of healing and happiness and peace and I'm not perfect by any means but um I am so much happier and peaceful than I was a year ago two years ago five years ago when I started this journey and I feel like we're on healing journeys, people don't often talk about how good it is, you know, and how good it can be. But on a day to day, moment to moment basis, you know, I feel so much more peaceful and happy. And I really want other people to have the same thing. So I will be doing some writing and I'm coming up with a framework to help other people deal with early trauma and healing from that. Wow, that's amazing. I think embodiment is so so important and i think it comes back with a lot of the the interview i've had with people the conversation we've had that is coming back very often you know your body i think one of the things we struggle as adopters is we disconnect from our own body and our body is the one who's keeping all the trauma actually 
as much as it is in our mind. So I think that is super, super important. And I think that's the last part of my own journey that I really struggle with to connect with my own body. And and for me, again, similar to you, going into doing dance and really doing grounding. So going to walk on the beach and really feeling myself connected to her. That, that has really helped in terms of trying to get back into my body. And I, I think also it's it's because we are when you are going through that journey of adoption, sometimes our mind is super active and we don't have time to actually stop and reflect and what is going on in my body. So we don't we tend to just forget that part of our own being. So I think it's, yeah, it is super important to focus on that part as well. But like you say, it's a, it's kind of a balance and an holistic way. So all different parts need to be connected. So thank you. And yeah, I would love to see a lot more work because I, I also do coaching. And that's kind of the thing I work most of the time with adoptees is how do they connect with their whole self, their stories and moving forward and i know earlier he said when you talk about your identity could go one way or the other and one was the 10 year old saying all this traumatic journey and i think some of the work i do in coaching is actually telling people you don't have to identify yourself with that traumatic story for the rest of your life and getting to a point where you are happy and at peace this is a journey that I want to take them as and there's not enough people talking about that and I think it would be really amazing for you to share your journey and uh, share it widely and where are you going with um, in between line what are your next direction because you've just finished the internship so you're moving to the next scale I think (laughs) yeah so um, it's always interesting of in between lines because I kind of know what my short term is but the whole Beyond that, it's been a constant act of surrendering Mm. in terms of not knowing and being okay with not knowing and trusting that good things will happen. But in terms of immediate things, we've got plans to tour a few more universities that we're just sorting out. I would personally love to to do something more like a step up in terms of going to a gallery, really more focusing on like photography and stuff like that. Um, myself I'm really trying to develop my creative practice because I did like a politics philosophy and economics degree which I realized in hindsight was just to make me employable um, but I'm deep down I'm deeply creative um, I played a lot of music when I was younger and now I'm trying to sort of turn my creativity into a career so doing lots of graphic design things video editing again sharpening up photography and really just thinking of myself as occupying that space between lived experience and the creative world. So yeah, in terms of in-between lines, it's more universities, hopefully do that step up to a gallery, but also develop the online space. Once I get round to it, we will release some sort of applications for people to tell their own story because we have money because it's, again, really important as a creative that you get paid for your time and your expertise. So we have money available for people to do films, blogs, art pieces, and hopefully we can start incorporating that into our exhibition work so that we have a constant conversation between, you know, the virtual and the physical. And within all that, just continuing to grow more contacts, interested in hearing people's stories. If, if any of the stuff resonates with anyone, you know, I'd love to get in touch. And yeah, just going on this kind of like wild ride that um, literally started in a cafe between the four of us. And now it's like a whole thing with a website and you know dates and stuff like that so 
yeah it's been really amazing yeah and uh, anyone who's listening out there who's interested do check out in between line website because they're doing amazing work and yeah do connect with anthony as well I really find it interesting you mentioned that you want to uh, develop your own creative practice because I realize a lot of adopters are very creative. I don't know if it's something that uh, is ingrained in us or it's just a coincidence, but at least for me, my creative practice has helped me as well to heal. Has that been the same thing for you? Is your creativity help you expand your journey into adoption? Definitely. Um, well, I've had a very mixed relationship with creativity because I think at the start, I because I was extremely musical as a child, like very a big singer. I sang a solo in a Royal Albert Hall when I was 11, you know, performed in the Barbican, Glyndebourne, did all of that sort of circuit and then also played piano and also bass guitar. But in hindsight, I realised I was doing it because to like to fill the hollowness, you know, of my adoption. And I love the praise. I love the relationship that I had with my sort of music teacher. And yeah, I just, I realized that it was a persona. And a lot of my healing journey has been like taking a step away from music because there was a possibility I was going to do a music degree and to fully commit. And then I just kind of realized, my higher self realized this wasn't really, this wasn't really who I was. So I've been learning to re-engage with other aspects of my creativity. I've always been very good at writing, but I realized that, you know, there are other forms of expressing your identity. It doesn't need to be verbal. Um, and often I feel like my hyper intellectualized writing style is a way of detaching from my trauma in not a super healthy way. So I'm glad I've got those skills, but I'm now trying to learn to do that through other ways. And whether that's through graphic design, just learning to draw. Even if it's like, I'm not very good at drawing, you know, like I'm going to be, actually, that's a lie. I've done a couple good drawing pieces, um, but slowly just working with like those negative beliefs that I had around my sort of drawing style, my handwriting um, and learning to sort of love myself in the act of just practicing rather than trying to perform, you know, being okay with my work, even if it's not good, rather than relentlessly trying to package together something so that it looks good to other people I think that's been profoundly healing is that process of becoming rather than having this finished product I love that learning to love yourself while you're practicing I think a lot of us again as adoptee really suffer from perfectionism so we don't want to start anything until it's like perfect and I think I had Drawing is one thing I still cannot do because I expect my drawing to be perfect. <laughs> and, <laughs> and everybody starts somewhere. You don't don't realize that that's just really, it's part of loving yourself and embracing who you are. So yeah, thank you for that, for reminding all of us. <laughs> it's a practice. It's not something I have down and I still make mistakes all the time, all the time, but that's okay. I, I, I don't even actually make mistakes. I prefer to think of it as adjustments, you know, but also... It's just about really trying to love yourself as you are rather than I'm okay or I'll be okay once I do this. You know, you can continue to work. You can continue to improve your craft, but you don't need to have any of that shame. Shame is not a good engine of growth. I think, yeah, I think shame is because um, a lot of adoptees suffer from shame and the shame has got different layers because you know the shame of the adoption itself the shame because you are abandoned by your family the shame that you don't look like 
your family. So it's it's a very multi-layered emotions, I think. Have you ever experienced that in your journey, the the shame oh, piece? Yeah. Or is that <laughs> <laughs> it has been a central part of my journey in healing. I am a really big fan of Brené Brown because she does a lot of work on shame and vulnerability and her TED Talks and basically everything she puts out has just been so amazing. But one of the key things she's that sort of twigged for me is that shame is the fear of disconnection. Um, and obviously being an adoptee, losing that relationship to your mum, shame is one of the primary things that you go through. It's the internalised grief of losing your mum and never wanting that to happen again. So I guess it's kind of like from the highest self perspective, looking down at your shame as, oh, it's, you know, your body as a child trying to protect yourself from ever feeling that again. But um, realizing that it's not a good engine, you know, it doesn't it will never feel that hollowness. And there are other ways that you can feel that hollowness. But for me, as someone who is hyper academic, I was like, Try, I was always trying to be amazing at everything when I was younger. And I think the moment when I kind of realized was finishing my uni, de like uni degree, having loads of friends. I won a sports award, you know, did amazing in my degree. Everything was going well and I was not happy, you know. <laughs> and it was because shame was that driver deep down, you know. I'd covered it up with other things, but you will never find what you seek when you operate through shame or through a shame lens and learning to operate from a place of just deep love and gratitude and for the resilience that I've had in what I've overcome and patiently learning to reparent myself, becoming my own mum, self-care and doing the deep work has led to this, you know, this peace and sometimes I still get moments you know for sure there's definitely context in which I feel shameful but it lasts a lot less long than it did before and I'm able to bounce back and I don't self-destruct which I think is another really big thing that I used to go through as well would be that something small would happen and then I'd just be like this whole shame mechanism would just blow up and you know it would just make things so much worse or I'd just like <laughs> just retreat but now I definitely don't do that as much. Yeah, I'm sure a lot of, a lot of people can resonate with that. I mean, it's a journey. And uh, like you say, it's, you know, sometimes it's still coming back. We we do heal, but we're not perfect in a sense. So it's perfect we still doubt exist. it. Yes, exactly. Perfect doesn't <laughs> exist. It's, it's, you know, it's like the thing, it's like the carrot in front of us that we yeah. use to make us work. But Absolutely. it's not there. The only thing you can do, like you're never going... Well, I do think there's a state in which you can be healed most in, mostly in your life. Like, I actually do believe that. Like, some people say you can never be fully healed. But I think that's more just saying that, like, life goes on, you know, mm. and difficult things would happen. But I definitely believe that there's a stage where, you know, things can get better on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah, but perfect, perfect definitely doesn't exist. And it's just about learning to engage more deeply with your feelings in a compassionate way. And that's a constant practice, you know, and I think part of the healing journey is realizing that that's all you can do. You know, there's never going to be a point that you're done because you wake up every day and then you just have to go feel your feelings and life goes on. But um, once you learn to appreciate that art of just connecting within yourself and also connecting without your like to the outside, to other people in deep ways, being able to be with that, those feelings then that's when you're really onto something. 
I'm so impressed by your level of awareness. Like I said, you know, a lot of us take years <laughs> to learn all these things and you are so full of wisdom and awareness that it's really nice to hear and I'm really feeling blessed that you share all your knowledge with us today. And you've already shared a lot, but I always hand by a final question, which is if you had to give an advice to your younger self or a younger adoptee, what would you tell them? So I think I've got two answers, if that's okay. Yeah, of um, course. <laughs> in terms of like specific advice, because I know that with a lot of these things, it's very easy to be vague about saying specific things. I wish I would have got into like nervous system regulation exercises a couple of years ago, learning polyvagal theory, because I did a lot of meditation. I've got hundreds of hours, possibly even over a thousand of hours meditations down, but I was just doing mindfulness. And whilst that does help, I was realizing that a lot of the discomfort I was feeling wasn't actually like negative feelings. It was just, I was disconnected from my body and in a state of fight or flight. And you don't need to be in that state all the time. So getting into nervous system regulation would be great. But in terms of more of a guiding principle, because advice is really context dependent and what I say now might not apply for your situation. What I'd say to my younger self would be find a way to live without struggle, you know? Um, and sometimes in the present moment, that involves struggling, that involves working really hard. I realized in hindsight that the reason why I worked so hard at my degree is because going to Exeter, I didn't really belong there. Everyone there was like a class and a half above me, you know, and I knew that in order to have my voice heard and to, you know, maybe do stuff like in between lines, which I didn't know I was going to do. I needed to do well on that degree in order to give myself the belief, but also other people the belief that what I was saying was credible. But as a long-term principle, struggle is part of life, but it's not what life is about. And finding a way to live in peace, relaxation, just the small things and growing that as a practice. Yeah, just think about ways that you can choose joy instead of choosing pain. Thank you so much. That's, um, that's really, really good advice. Where can people find you to connect with you? So if you want to hear more about In Between Lines, we have a website, inbetweenlines.co.uk, where we host resources and we'll soon be commissioning people to, to tell their story and just to create a community of people who have this feeling of being in between the lines and that it's super okay to be there. You know, it's an amazing place to be um, because you have so much insight into the rest of society. And... For myself, you can contact me on LinkedIn. Um, I post a lot of my sort of career stuff, particularly around influencing systems through lived experience. So yeah, Anthony Lynch on LinkedIn should be able to find me there. All the detail is in the show notes as well. Thank you so much, Anthony. It's been a pleasure uh, having you and having these conversations. Come back to us and tell us an update on everything wonderful you're doing. Will do. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an amazing conversation. Your questions have been excellent. Thank you. Take care. Bye. This is Christelle Pellecure, and you have been listening to Black Adoptees' Identities, where Black adult adoptees share their stories. Please do share and subscribe to our podcast and do stay connected with us by following us on Instagram at Black Adoptees Identities. Thank you for listening to this week's episode and until next time, goodbye.